So I want you to welcome with me Jason and Lisa and Stephanie for a very special live recording of, check this out, our 50th episode of Searching the Sacred, which just hit 10,000 downloads on Monday. How awesome is that? Give them a huge hand. Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason. I'm Steph. And I'm Lisa. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions. Questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt. Questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We are creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. And so welcome to the live recording of Searching the Sacred. We're so happy to have you here. And this isn't just about being live with you and listening to simply us talk. We want you to share your thoughts, your questions, your ponderings, your wonderings, your thoughts as we go. And so there will be a point in the middle of this recording where we're going to invite people to come up to the mic and share what has kind of stirred up in them, and maybe a question, uh, maybe an insight, a thought. Um, and so we, we ask that you keep those comments mostly brief uh, for the sake of everybody here and our time limitations. And then at the end, we'll invite you to kind of share as we normally do in a scripture circle to come up and maybe share a takeaway. Not everybody, uh, that might extend this quite a bit, uh, but if you have a takeaway that you want to share with everyone, we'd invite you to kind of come up and share like a closing question or a closing idea that has been kind of landed on for you as we've worked our way through this passage. And so you had an opportunity to vote on the passages for tonight. And the people listening to this that aren't in the room don't have any idea that that took place. And they are probably curious, well, what were these people voting on? And so Steph's going to read the different passages that we could have talked about, and then she's going to introduce the passage that we will talk about before Lisa reads it. So when we were talking uh, beforehand about what to study tonight, and we got a couple of votes from uh, people on social media and things like that, um, but we were chatting about it. And as most good ideas from 40 Orchards come, they come from Lisa. <laughs> she, so Lisa's like, what if we did something Thanksgiving related? Because it's only a week out from Thanksgiving. But then as we talked about it, we're like, yeah, but like talking about gratitude, that's not really us. Like, <laughs> that's too easy. <laughs> What would be more us? And so what we landed on was we found some narratives of feasts and celebrations in the Bible where there was some drama, because that's really what Thanksgiving is like. <laughs> and so, um, so the three votes were all related to drama at a feast. So the choice number one was family conflict at Saul's table. And I wonder if the votes would have been skewed any differently if I had said that's actually when a father tries to kill his son with a spear because he is so upset about his life choice in his future. So that was choice number one. Uh, choice number two is about running out of wine at a celebration and everyone's still there and having a good time. There's no wine left. That's a tragedy. Um, and choice number three uh, labeled as patriarchal drunkenness and female defiance. Uh, and it was a tight race 
But that choice number three of patriarchal drunkenness and female defiance is what won. So that takes us to the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, if you are following around along with us. And Lisa reluctantly is going to <laughs> read this passage. You guys, um, <laughs> I'm just going to do it. It'll be fine. Uh, I am reading from the New King James Version, uh, Esther 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus, it's kind of like a dinosaur, you guys, sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in the Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen, curtains fastened with the cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all of the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to the king Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahaman Bizta, Harbona, Bigza, Abagza, <laughs> I don't know any of these names, um, Zethar and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, <sighs> to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. I feel like we should clap for that, <laughs> right? Thanks for reading that, Lisa. <laughs> I think it's only like fair in light of what this is with 40 Orchards that we go through every name and give all of the detail of what they all mean. <laughs> to make I'm, it worthwhile. You guys are dying, I know. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> well, you know, the Ahasuerus, which is also could be Artaxerxes or Xerxes. So if you've been reading a different translation, you only would have had to say Xerxes. Well, I chose the wrong Bible. <laughs> um, is potentially the title of the king more than the name of the king. And it means I will be silent and poor. So the repeating of that name is perhaps surprising when we think about, like, what did you notice about what we read? That goes, we're, we're the ones talking, but everybody can think about that. Like, what was the emphasis in the verses? Felt like he was neither silent nor poor. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was not living into his name. Okay. 
Like this king's name is silent and poor, but everything around him is other than that. And it was all credited to him. Like it wasn't just that this was lavish and filled with gold and splendor and lasting 180 days and then seven days of feasting and he's not going to put a cap on how much people can drink, but it was all about, this was the king's stuff that he was sharing. And so it wasn't, there was like a lot of, there was a lot of pride as opposed to humility built into this. I would, I'm curious, like what rose up in Lisa, besides the names, like what rose up in, in reading um, as we listened, as we heard that. I felt like there was just a lot of details. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of felt a little bit like the temple language or the tabernacle language where it's like you get all these details about like the linens and what they're using and what's happening, which feels a little bit strange because it's like a palace, mm-hmm. but not strange because that's what I guess I would expect in a palace. Mm-hmm. Well, but it, it I think that's a, it's a good observation because there's a question embedded in here of when a nation has opulence and extra, where does the extra go? Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a way that in the, in the story of the people of God, as they were like leaving slavery in Egypt and as they were wandering in the wilderness, the extra that they had went towards constructing the tabernacle, which was a center of worship that would help them build a community together, build a relationship with God. And where that, excess, quote-unquote, was then accessible to all. And that was where any excess was pointed. And in this case, we have the Persian Empire, and all of the excess is where? With the king. With the king and with who the king invites. For a, This is what I was tripping on, 180 days of partying, you guys. That's like... <laughs> That's so long. That's so much wine for a really long time. Like, do you even have chance to get a hangover and recover? Well, they, and they didn't even have Jesus turning the water into wine with them. So it was just a yeah, lot of wine. Like, that's really just impressive. so much extra. And I wonder what the state of the people were was at the same time that the royalty was partying. Hmm. And what, what type of work were they having to do to keep that party going, maybe? Right? Is this all stored up? Did they take a lot of different Sabbaths in order to like store this up for a long time? Or was this, was this being, was this happening while there's people slaving away in order to keep that party going and they're just watching? Well, I have no doubt that that's true, but it makes me think about like who's invited in and it's just kind of nice for the power to distract everybody with fun like for a fun party for 180 days means everybody's distracted from anything else. They're just having a good time. Mm-hmm. They're feasting off of whatever that excess is. Mm-hmm. Like you're distracted for 180 days really nicely. Yeah, so this could even be a, a tool in the hands of a leader to say, mm-hmm. who can I invite in and distract them for half a year as I grab more power? Because they're just partying and having fun with me and maybe... Because the first emphasis, like in verse 1, the emphasis wasn't on the party. What was the emphasis on in verse 1? That's a great question. (laughs) Well, I mean, location. The size of the empire. Yeah, Mm -hmm. big. So this happens. If if you know your map. If you know your map. (laughs) I feel like I had to, like, think about it for a second. So from India to Ethiopia, 
like imagine those who are ge geography nerds, picture India to Ethiopia. If you're not, look it up on a map later. <laughs> but this is a giant empire. So the history of uh, this, uh, the people in the land a little bit that maybe is helpful to know is that in the ancient world, you have three empires that rise up at different time periods. You have the Egyptian empire. That was the first and biggest empire. So they had the Nile River to base their wealth on. They have the pyramids that people still visit today. And so they were the powerhouse in that part of the world for a really long time. But then the Babylonian empire rose up as a powerhouse. They had the hanging gardens of Babylon. They had libraries. They had rivers. They also had this abundance that created an empire. And through that empire, they took over most of the Middle East. And as they took over all of those lands, that's how the, um, that's how the southern kingdom of Judah ended up in exile in like 560 BC. And I skipped the Assyrian Empire. In, before the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire rose up. Their capital was Nineveh. Um, then the Babylonian Empire rose up. The Persian Empire comes after that. And so when the Persian Empire conquers Babylon, they get everything else Babylon had already conquered. Like it was sort of like through taking a capital city, they got to get all of it. Mm -hmm. um, and their takeover was different, their wealth was different, but they're once again the last empire in a long string of empires conquering, using wealth, having, having it all while other people don't. And well, as the one that comes towards the end, they've done a lot of conquering along the way. They're not just building from the ground up. They're, they're pillaging and destroying and accumulating and enslaving all along the way. And this is, if you are kind of biblically thinking about what happens at similar time periods, this is then going to be um, the time period of Nehemiah when it's the Persian empire that allows the people of Israel to go back and rebuild, but only while they are still in power. They don't, they don't say like, oh, we're sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll stop being your ruler they say, oh, you can go back as long as we're still your government. And you pay us. And you pay us a lot of taxes. <laughs> and so it was only a partial win that they were able to return. It was a different conquering method than Babylon, but it was still an empire. It was still a conquering. It was still wealth and power. You were going to say something, Lisa? No, I was just thinking, like, it, partly it's the, it's the games of power and how you keep power and yeah, there's a lot of conquering. I don't feel like there is still like conquering of things, but it feels very different now, but it feels like power still has the same like playbook. Mm -hmm. Like you still get people to come in. You still kind of parade the wealth. You accumulate it. You try to, your excess is for yourself or to build yourself, build your kingdom, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even personally, right? Like I was thinking, I, well, because immediately when you said it, I was like, well, what do you do with your access, Lisa? And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, shoot. I know what I do with my access. Mm -hmm. Like, right, like it doesn't go to a pot. Like I don't give it away. I don't put it out for others. And yet in my head, I know like that's like, oh, yeah, that's actually probably how it could work. Mm -hmm. There's a way of actually reading the book of Esther as it doesn't have to have been true to be true. Mm -hmm. So everything is very 
big and Billy, like the king's name is, you know, poor and humble. And here he's not poor and humble. The queen's name Vashti means beautiful. And she's like touted for her beauty. There's a way that historically it might not have actually happened, but it was written down as a way of sort of being an Aesop's fable for us of like, what do we do with wealth and power? How do we respond when people are oppressed? Where are we looking at are we seeing things for what they are and how much are we repeating the pattern that's been around from time immemorial of like my little subheading in the study Bible calls chapter one verses one through 22 wine and women. Oh, (laughs) not what mine says. (laughs) (laughs) Which made me think of Hamilton and like wine and women. And then there was something else actually made me think of Hamilton. But even that, that like, these themes get repeated throughout okay, but, time. Okay, mine says the king dethrones Queen Vashti, which feels like when you put together the king dethrones Queen Vashti and you put in wine and women, I'm like, oh yeah, that's still, yeah, we, we in the patriarchal swim. <laughs> like that's how women are dethroned, right? Like that's part of the, mm-hmm. yeah, your mm-hmm. physical beauty and then throw some, Throw a party in there where you have to come out and do a dance. Mm-hmm. So where are you taking us next, Steph? <laughs> well. I'm so intrigued. Let's go. Well, I think, um, actually, I love verse four right now. It just stuck out to me as we're thinking about this, what do we do with our extra? Because the verse is, in my translation, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom. And we're sitting in a renovated old church, and I think how often do we throw around a phrase like riches of his glorious kingdom? And we're not talking about Xerxes. And I don't know, the phrasing of that just sounded so um, reminiscent to me. So the word glorious or glory is kavod in Hebrew. And it means glory, it means abundance, it also means weight. So when we think about the ancient world and riches and wealth, picture like the way they would know how wealthy someone was, was by putting what they had on a literal scale. You put all their gold on a scale, and that's how you know how much gold there is. So when someone was important, they were called weighty. Because the scale went down, they had that much gold, and that is the word for glory, and that is the word for heavy. And that is a word in the Hebrew scriptures that's often used to refer to God. And here, it's Xerxes showing off his heavy, weighty, powerful, glorious, rich kingdom. And that makes me, it's sort of a different angle on the same question, but like, what do we think is weighty? What do we give weight to and how does that affect our actions? Because I'm thinking about now being a person at this party who's not as weighty as Xerxes, who's watching all of this opulence be sh- being shown off and who might kind of want some of it for themselves. Like, I wish I was a little more weighty. Maybe I could have a little bit more glory by being at this pow- party, you know? And... Um, Sorry, I heard him on tell Jordan. You said you're. <laughs> I just heard like, wish I was a little bit taller. Wish I was baller. <laughs> it's like I just a song. You don't have playing. a copyright to that, so please don't go any further. <laughs> don't sing too far. 
Sorry. Well, no, but I, but I think about like I, when I have, so I have, I, I would imagine many of us have had different experiences with wealth in our life. Some of us feel like we have wealth. Some of us feel like we don't have wealth. Some of us have been around wealth when we haven't had it or been around wealth when we do have it. And I'm just thinking about the whole dynamic of wanting that happens in those rooms, that desiring of of carrying some of that weight along with the person throwing the party, of wishing I could be as weighty as that person, as glorious as that person. To me, it's like not only a question of like, it would be really nice to have nice things and be able to enjoy them, but also there's a, there's an ability to focus on something different when that wealth is so much or at a certain level based on the society or the culture you grew up in. Because Xerxes is able, in this passage kind of exemplifies this, is able to think about or talk about or, or, or regale people in, well, we have like these linens over here and these are the drapes and these are the goblets of gold and this is the gold toilet and this is the thing. And, like, and it's just like we, you, you have the freedom because you're so privileged and so powerful and so wealthy to focus on that kind of stuff. Whereas other people are like, welcome to my home, couch, chair, table, Bathroom down the hall on the left. Now you know the lay of the land, right? And it's like, you wouldn't even say that because it's just, welcome to my home, right? You're not going to be like, and we, we got this couch at this place, and it was like, it, was, it, was, it came out that season. You know, like, we just, you might, maybe you do, and that's great, but like, that's just not how the majority of people roll with like, keeping up with the Joneses in a way. And it feels a little bit like Xerxes is like the original Jones and saying like, here's what it takes to keep up with me and look what I get to focus my time on as opposed to all the cares of the rest of the world. Because for 180 days, I just get to walk around and point out all the different furniture and the beauty of my kingdom. Mm -hmm. And it's not just beauty. The other word that he uses here is gadula, which my translation is translating majesty. But gadol is a word we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, just if you're up to date on the the um, this series on the Hebrew women, we talked about the Shunammite woman, and the Shunammite woman was considered gadol, and it's the word great. Abram in Genesis 12 is told that God will make him into a gadol, great nation. And there's this greatness that we see being modeled of following God of risking things and giving up things being what greatness really is. And here we have Xerxes considering himself great and showing off his greatness. And is that what greatness really is? Is that what greatness really looks like? Um, and so I think that that there's something in that that extends beyond money. That's more into the power thing of like, what do I think it takes to be great? What kind of greatness am I searching for? And what kind of greatness is, is what God wants for us to see and to experience and to, to do? So this is an interesting passage because it kind of flips it. Every example that we've had has been someone that we would encourage us to identify with, whether it's you know the hospitality of Abram, or whether it's the hospitality of and the faith of the Shunammite woman, but here we have someone who I'm guessing we're not supposed to model our lives after who's doing 
and claiming some of the same things. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition to start out that way. And especially as we then see the narrative unfold with Vashti and then leading up to Esther. Well, I think it also sheds light on why the book of Nehemiah, or like when we think about things historically together, do you guys ever watch, there, there's like TikToks and social media videos where people say, did you know that this thing in history was happening the same time as this thing in history? I always find it mind blowing. Like I think they were at very different time periods. I can't think of a good example of it right now. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. and Anne Frank were born in the same year. Excellent example. This is why we have a live podcast. That's mind-blowing, right? So biblically, that happens where things overlap with each other, right? And we don't always see them as overlapping with each other. There's an overlap between the book of Esther and the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. And that at the same time, there's this movement of people going back to try to rebuild. There's people who don't want to leave, who are staying, who are, who are not definable from the people next to them who are Persian because it's been a great place to live. There are people who have gained power by being a part of the Persian empire who don't want to go back and rebuild something that's struggling. They would rather stay a part of this empire that gives them all these things talked about in chapter one. And so they're comfortable. And so if someone like Nehemiah says, hey, let's go back and rebuild from the ashes, they're like, no. <laughs> I've got a life here. I've got good things here. Um, and so to say, like, what would we have done if we were living in that time period? Would we have wanted to go back to rubble and rebuild it? Or would we, would have, want, would we have wanted to stay someplace where they have enough wine to party for 180 days? Well, I don't know about wine for 180 days. But it does make me think about... Um, like staying too long at a big church. Hmm. Like, um, for those listening on the podcast, there was a murmur <laughs> that took place when she said that. Also, I want to introduce, this is like, I'm so excited to do this live. Lisa always has these moments in the podcast, doesn't she? Where she drops something and everyone's, and we're, and we're like, Oh, <laughs> And the room this, just did that, and I love that. Well, okay. because it resonates. So you got to repeat. Well, you got to repeat. Well, there's a truth to Like, there's a, I think, I'm guessing some of us have this feel. Um, I stayed at a large church because it was really scary to try to leave that and then find the thing that, um, <gasps> God, I don't even know what I, like, it's daunting because it, it You've got really good worship music. You got the kids are taken care of. You've got um, programs, so many programs. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's your community. It's huge, and um, and then if you're on staff, I mean, you know, you kind. Me and the dinosaur guy are kind of. I, I, <laughs> I feel a little bit of resonance there. Um, but it was hard to go because it was giving up a lot of um, what felt like security, and it was easy. God, like church was easy. You just show up and like this is great, high five. Here we are. We did it. Get my coffee. <laughs> and I like, yeah, it's really hard to go back to the thing, even if there's freedom. 
Mm. Right. And I don't even know that I knew what the freedom was until I got out of it because man, it is intoxicating when you're in it. Mm-hmm. It, it, Reminds me, there's just multiple examples in the scripture of how hard it is to leave something. Um, Because the unknown is always harder than the known. And there's always something you're giving up as you're moving towards something else. And that it's so, what we're giving up is so tangible. There's so much power and wealth and opulence here to like do anything different than this is pushing back against so much. And we can wonder what our Persia is, what our Xerxes is. Where are we just really happy to have the party and not willing to open our eyes to something else? And I think part of what is attractive about a lot of what you're describing is, is all of the things around it that, that just make it easy. But typically, and not, not always, but typically there's also almost always an, an answer and a clarity to any question or hesitation to the point where those hesitations and questions aren't even welcomed anymore because we've already answered that, solved it, made, you know, decided on it. And so critical thinking or doubts or wrestlings or wanderings or leavings are just, they're, they're not just not healthy. They're, um, we got words for them. You're like you're backsliding, right? Like we've we've got terms for what that looks like, and and that becomes very scary when you know you're in that place, but you don't feel like you can say it to anyone, and so you're already alone, even though you have everything around you. Which I mean, this is that gets us into what Vashti does. Like she mm-hmm. says no, and the king is mad, and nobody's on Vashti's side. <laughs> like. That was a big deal. That is a big deal. If we want to stand up to and say no to what everybody else is doing, that can be a very lonely place and a very dangerous place. Or to say, like, I disagree with your theology mm-hmm. when you're not the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it just doesn't go over well. You don't usually get to say, like, mm, I think your stance on human sexuality is wrong. <laughs> It doesn't you always know. feel like an equal power balance to have a conversation. <laughs> well, it just doesn't go anywhere real fast. Right? Like it becomes, um, yeah, like you don't get to do, you don't get to believe differently. But it'll it'll cost you. And it feels like that's what Vashti is definitely, like it costs her. Because she is the next thing he wants to show off. She's being considered a part of what shows him to be so great. And anything that questions that authority becomes dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. not to jump ahead in the story, but if you if you look down at verse, I think it's um, 16, one of the people whose names only Lisa can pronounce said that Queen Vashti has done wrong not only to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of the king. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say, King, whatever his name was, commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So her, her singular defiance is suddenly seen as a threat because all the women might suddenly realize that they're human. 
and have a voice. And this could tumble the entire thing. And we're in 2023 and we're still having that conversation. <laughs> this is a good time to pause for... Um, audience feedback. Audience feedback. <laughs> what, uh, the, Kirby's raising his hand. <laughs> um, I know. Does Kirby have feedback on I'm our sound sorry, or on the podcast? Sound guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do have a question that I've been pondering and you brought it back, which is really lovely. Weightiness, what is it for Esther or other women to be the weightiness of the dominant patriarchal society? What is it for women to identify conceptually in society as not human, but value or mm. weightiness? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a, as we keep going in here. So we had to just read this section because we're going to uplift Vashti. And I encourage us to read the story of Esther because what Esther learns to do is Esther figures out how to leverage how she's seen. She knows that she is seen as property and she uses that to get what she needs and wants. But that's a whole thing to take on to say, yeah, how is it to be? How am I considered? How am I seen? And is this worth I'm receiving from this person, from this system, the actual kind of worth I want, or is it something that I need to fight back against? Mm -hmm. Any other, this is like anybody besides Kirby, since they don't have a <laughs> microphone, needs to come up to this microphone. If you have other thoughts, questions that are popping up for you as we've been talking. I'm just going to keep spitballing. As Lisa spitballs, somebody come up to the mic. This is your chance to walk without everybody staring at you. Get in here, you guys. <laughs> um, well, with Kirby's question, I was thinking about, um, it reminds me of like this wrestle that I'm having of um, like what is my place in, like I am an abolitionist. I do think we need to get rid of the way that our justice system works and imagine something brand new. And the only way to imagine something brand new is to let something die. And so, but like, what is my role in it? Like, where do I actually like, where do I have power? Where do I have to like fall behind somebody else and learn something different and it's interesting because like as like Esther becomes more subversive Vashti's like no like she'll put it all on the line and be done um and Esther is learning like the subversive <clears throat> subversive way in and it feels like that's oftentimes when we're trying to change big systems or we're trying to like push against big things like those become your options like you become collateral damage or you get really subversive and you also have in the book of esther like mordecai who's a part of the system and trying to make something better from the inside as a part of the system so you do have these different models even in this book of somebody who like said no Mm -hmm. of somebody mm -hmm. who like manipulated the king through the king's own whims that's Esther and you have Mordecai who had been an official in the king's palace and really trying to do good by his people through being an official in the palace and so what is it to just think like what is mine to do yeah. Yeah. what is mine to do to have the glory mm -hmm. and weight be more spread out 
than a 180-day party. <laughs> ask a question or a thought. Is this on? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about Vashti. Um, I'm wondering how, how this woman who knows the system that she's a part of understands the violence of that system because she's close to power. I'm wondering where does she find um, that internal kind of strength and power to say no? Um, and then like, I don't know the story super, super well. So I'm like, I'm wondering like, what happens with Vashti? Um, like, like what, what brings, and because I think the reason why I ask this is because I think I'm, you know, even just in my own marriage and, and as I'm, you know, raising a couple of daughters and I'm thinking about how um, the women in my life are figuring this out in a patriarchal society and, um, and how hard that is right now. And I'm wondering, like, where, where do the resources come from, um, even though it's costly? And so, like, how do we um, create containers, create communities that bring about the resources for women to find that kind of, you know, what you were talking about, that, like, that weightiness um, that they uh, can and deserve to hold? You know, the thing about Vashti is that we don't know much about her story. We just know what she does here. That means we get to Midrash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the idea of Midrash is when you don't know someone's story, you get to imagine it. You get to say, all right, what do we think was Vashti's backstory? What would help her do this right now? And there's actually a way to consider her. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out another possibility even as we consider her story besides what we've said. So there's a way she could be consciously fighting the patriarchy here. Absolutely. There's also a way she could be on the king's side. Because what the king is asking for. So when we look at the verse 10. So on the seventh day, the heart of the king was merry with wine. So the emphasis is the fact that the king is not in his, the king's drunk. In the king's drunkenness is when he is saying, hey, let's parade the queen out here and show everybody how beautiful she is. But the queen is supposed to be the king's. He's asking her to do something that would embarrass him later. She's, he's asking her to do something that even he might consider immoral if he weren't drunk. So she's in the position of the only way to guard my virtue and the king's virtue is to defy the king. And so we can wonder, is this a conscious, like, F the system? Yes. <laughs> Which answer can be yes. <laughs> is this just, uh, I'm going to protect both of us from an embarrassment when he wakes up tomorrow morning? Which could be a similar type moment to what happens at the end, right? With Esther not being asked to come, but going anyway, and risking that she wasn't asked to be there, and she could have been kicked out or killed for showing up when she wasn't invited, whereas Vashti didn't show up when she was, both are potentially defying the royal decree, but one for the sake of maybe protecting or effing the patriarchy, and the other for protecting the people. 
Um, it probably is not super helpful that I came from a meeting about addictions because <laughs> I'm also like, oh, this is very, um, there is something in the way that he's respond, like what he's asking for, like it reminds me of um, like the, like the drunken request that is uncomfortable for everyone. And what do you do as the person who loves the person who is in what I would call active addiction? I don't know that he is. I'm projecting completely. Um, but like it's just making me think like there's probably in this story some elements of like shame that are popping up that I can't imagine that for her there's a I mean, maybe she loves him a lot. Maybe he's really great. <laughs> I'm trying to be generous, you guys. <laughs> God. I know. He does. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, she's dispensable, which it feels like there's, it's such a complicated, um, I don't know. Like, you throw the wine and the drunkenness in, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we have a, we have a story here. And that, that's not so far from a lot of our like lived experience of either people we love or people that we're in relationship with. Like that struggle is huge. Mm -hmm. And the ramifications of it. Well, and for her to know that she the the room that has been emphasized in verse eight is everybody is doing according to every man's pleasure. Mm -hmm. That's the mm -hmm. room that she's being told to come into. And so she is in this situation of I defy the king and that's a risk or I go into this room where everybody has been doing according to their pleasure and what position does that leave me in? And there's a way she's being described. I just want to, um, her name uh, in verse 11, they wanted to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty for she was Tov Mare in Hebrew. So Tov Mare, Tov is the word for good that is this word for like an abundant life that brings life that brings life goodness that we see in Genesis 1. And Mare is, is uh, this word of appearance and vision and Tov Mare together is actually used for like Joseph and Potiphar's wife, that he is Tov Mare. And in that vision, there's something she is reaching for in him. David is described as Tov Mare when he's anointed by Samuel. There's these times where people are described this way, and it seems to have a particular kind of beauty that is about beauty, but it's about more than beauty. There's something like show-stopping that actually makes someone else want to possess them? And what is it for Vashti to be to carry the weight of that? Because that also has a weight. Any thoughts on that, token male? Okay, I, we yeah, I was going to say about being the token male, so that's like time I was going to say I'm going to have my wife make me a sweatshirt for Christmas that says my husband is Tove Murray. <laughs> Irresistible baby, um, but I thought that might derail things. So, 
does Van, does she get to hang out with a bunch of women? Well, that's that's the thing. She has been hosting a feast for the women, according to verse nine. So in the tradition, she's having a feast for the women while the men are having a feast. It's separate. Okay. So like, and she's being pulled from that feast in order to go to theirs. Right. I feel like maybe those women just all were like, this is some crap. You know, like if you're all together and you got one guy like, like we're having a good little, we have, oh yeah, formation, get in it. Um, I just wonder like maybe if they're, like sometimes what's really helpful is when it's a bunch of women that get together. Mm-hmm. Like that's when you get some power. Mm-hmm. Like when you all, like when there's that synergy. Mm-hmm. Did so, they stand So maybe that, that feast. Well, and that's what they're scared of, right? I mean, they, they point that out a few verses later, like, oh, crap. They might all catch on that this is possible, mm-hmm. and this could get really bad really fast. Mm-hmm. So there is power in that collective mm-hmm. synergy of, of voice and autonomy and activism. What I love about Vashti's story is not only do we not know what happens before, we also don't know what happens after. So we hear that the anger of the king burns and that she's never in the face in the presence of the king again. That's not so bad. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it. Okay. <laughs> and exactly. So we can wonder, it is possible. So there's Midrash about this too. Like, did he kill her? Have her executed? Oh, no. Or did she just get to go live with the women the rest of her life and stay in the feast of the women without getting paraded in front of the men? I have my midrash. <laughs> She's real happy. <laughs> She's, it's real good. And so, you know, there's a way that this is a prequel to Esther's story. And so we kind of read it sometimes as just a prequel. Oh, this is just setting the stage for why Esther becomes queen. But tonight, I think part of what we can be doing is saying, what is it to see Vashti for herself and is more than just a prequel of someone else's story? Um, What is in her story? What is in the party that leads to this moment? What can we learn from her? What can we learn from this moment in and of itself before Esther comes onto the scene? You know, what's interesting is that, um, you know, like a lot of times we try to like put ourselves into the story. And I think I have a really hard time with Vashti because it's like that whole, that descriptor of beauty of like, she's that beautiful. Like feels like it makes people put themselves out of like, well, that can't be my story. Like, well, I don't have, I'm not attached to power that way. I would but I wonder if we, if instead of thinking like exterior beauty, that we just think of her as a beautiful woman. Like all that she is, like that—that's the thing that's may not be the thing that's being asked to be paraded, but like the invitation for us is to see ourselves in each of the characters, right? To figure out where do we connect, how do we, how do we pull in there? And I, as I was sitting here thinking about it, I was trying to figure out like why do I have such a hard time? Like I cheer for her, like I want her to win, but I don't see myself. Mm. in her story like there's sometimes those big descriptors that feel like you're not quite worthy of it Mm. I I feel like there's 
something about like when we are approaching power and we're trying to it work on or dismantle or abolish the systems that are harming people and marginalizing and oppressing others. I tend because I sit in a seat of privilege and power and with all the that comes with being a white male pastor in the United States that I want to find like the one thing, the right thing that will do the thing. Or I want to like, if we all just did it this way, you know, if we were all just like Esther, then it would work. And I think what this story is reminding me is that we don't know all of Vashti's story, but it took her story in order for Esther to do what she did. And instead of it being like, well, which one should we be? As if it's an either or. There's a challenge to me to say, what? how can I respect those that need to be a Vashti to say, this is bullshit, I'm out. <laughs> and for others to say, I see it as bullshit, but I'm staying in. Or for the Mordecais to be like, I'm going to use the privilege that I have as someone on the inside to try to work uh, around the skirts of this to manipulate it so that these people that don't have any power can start to grab a little bit and have their voice be heard. And from the outside, I look at that and I'm like, sell out. Or I'm like, person with no values or a person that's not willing to make a stand. And, and sometimes that is the case. But in some, but in some ways, it's maybe maybe that person's really necessary right now. And, and the next generation is going to benefit from that person staying in that way, as well as benefit from the other person calling BS, as well as from the other person using what power they have to skirt around and do the thing, even though they have actually no power. And so I'm just, I'm just like hold, trying to hold all three as valuable as opposed to like which one's the right one? Because that's what I tend to try to do is which one's the right one? Who should we model ourselves after? That made me think about one of the reasons that um, I believe somebody historically fact-checked this with Google sometime later or now, that Martin Luther didn't want Esther to be in the Bible as a book. I think it was one of them that was on his I'm sure he didn't. Um, but there were two, but the reason for that is because God never speaks and God is never talked about. Yep. And this question of, are the humans in this narrative acting on their own agency or in God's will? And how that complicates what Jason, you're saying even more is like, how is this the human story of all of us doing the best we can with the life we have? Sometimes not hearing an audible word from God about whether we're taking the right or wrong step. Mm. Not knowing who we're supposed to be in face of this oppression or in face of this wealth. Like, should I keep this wealth? Should I give this wealth away? Should I be at this party? Should I leave this party? Should I say no? Should I... That God is not at any point in the story saying, do this, don't do that, be this person, don't be that person. Mordecai is the one who says those famous words that you're here for such a time as this. Um, but he never even attributes it to, like the verse I was just looking it up, it is, um, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He doesn't say, who knows whether God put you here for such a time as this. It's much more vague than that. And that just feels like real life. This, this feels like a real life story of like, none of us really know what we're supposed to do a lot of the time. 
in the face of power, in the face of people being hurt and of people being drunk. And um, how do we, what, is there something different than just saying who should we be in this story? Is there something more like just resonant with the human experience of like, oh yeah, sometimes I'm dinosaur guy, sometimes I'm Xerxes <laughs> <laughs> showing off what I have. Sometimes I'm Vashti saying no. Sometimes I'm Esther figuring out how to use my power. Sometimes I'm just a person on the outside being the victims of everybody else who's around. And how do we help each other? And then sometimes we up and leave for Canada, like those that left to go back to Jerusalem. It's like, I'm out. Like, I can't do this anymore. And we're going to go back and start over in this place. And that can be respected too. Mm. I think this sort of leads us maybe into a little bit of like, okay, what do we, what do we do with this then? If we can't quite name ourselves as a person or, or who the example is, or I kind of want to hear if Lisa has any more midrash on Vashti though, before I do that, any other thoughts about who Vashti was? Oh God, I've got all kinds of stories about her. Cause I think she's like, cause we get such a snippet, but we see whether she's doing it, out of like, I don't care why she's doing it. Like she stood up to power at the expense of herself. And that for me feels like, I think part of that wrestle, cause I'm, I don't oftentimes want to take that risk of like putting myself on the line like that. Mm -hmm. Like where you're actually not quite sure what the outcome is. Like I like to know what the priest, like I want to know if I'm going to a protest, if I'm about to be arrested, I kind of want to know. Because then I can prepare or choose not to go. If I want to um, tell a senior pastor they're wrong, I want to know if that's going to cost me down the road either my membership, my job, my belonging. Your salvation. The, that too. <laughs> <laughs> my dad gets worried about it all the time, so mm -hmm. we're, we're not far off. <clears throat> Maybe, yeah, I just maybe I, that's where we can see her description as being Tove Mare. So good to look upon. Good is about more than physical beauty. Mm -hmm. If if someone is being seen as Tove as the kind of goodness that produces life, then that's the kind of goodness that's willing to be a seed that gets planted in the ground and cracks open and loses everything it was in order to bring forth the fruit inside of itself. And so if somebody really is Tove and being seen as Tove, I wonder if that is an example of someone who's willing to risk. Whatever happens, I know life can come. Yeah, well, and I think it feels like that, it's like that generational thing of being willing to risk yourself because you know the generation that's coming behind you. Like as you're talking about raising daughters and we're talking about, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why we have to put ourselves out for things now so that there's a different future for those who come behind so that like an Esther can do the thing that Esther does. Right. Like, I don't have it, but Esther I, like does. would Esther have been able to do what she did without Vashti doing what, like she defies the King, but the King has already been defied by someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and so is there a way that this is 
generationally allowing Esther to come after. Well, we'd love to invite a few people up to the microphone to give takeaways, which can be final, it can be questions that you want to carry. It can be something new that you thought about or want to hold with you as a um, wondering, a pondering. It is a little nerve-wracking, we know, to go to the microphone, but we'd love to hear from a few more people. Trevor came up here and seems like lined up to go to the microphone. No, you were just coming up with, just sit in the front row. You don't have to. No, but what I was going to do is I was going to encourage if you do want to come up to the microphone, you can do, you can like come sit in the front row so that it's easier like to do that. So if you feel like you want to give a takeaway, come kind of sit in the front. We can maybe have like four or five people. Um, Listen, you know, and it can be the things you wanted to talk back, you wanted to say back to us. It can you be can the be mad at us for a takeaway. You can be like, you guys were talking. No. <laughs> that gets to be a takeaway if you want. Bring yourself. Check, check. Okay. <laughs> can I just say that walk is terrifying? <laughs> great. Thanks like for helping people take the, the walk. That's great. Um, I actually, you did kind of touch on what I was chewing on back there. Um, it feels in some ways like Vashti and Esther are foil characters of some kind, um, both representing like women, but the different approaches. I really, I was actually thinking like without Vashti, Esther doesn't get to do what she does. Um, but I was also like, I think you just read the first chapter, right? Yes. Um, in the context of that wider story, the small intro kind of has so much more weight to it because it seems to pave its way in there. So, um, I had a couple things. I, I thought it was really funny that King Xerxes fury subsides and then he remembers the decree or the edict that he did in the first verse? Like, how drunk was this guy for 180 days? And, uh, yeah, lastly, just taking the crown from one beautiful woman to another because she seems more tame, less resistant, less strong, and then she has this whole story underneath. So, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much it. Well done. Everybody. Thanks. <laughs> Um, what I took away, um, I like the word gadal and is to be great. And I didn't really, I hadn't really thought about how, you know, God says, it, you know, it's risky and I'm giving up things, you know, uh, like Abraham, um, and how, uh, well with Bosky, she was definitely great, you know, you know, risking it all to say no, and how um, I I think God wanted to portray that for her, and maybe you know the opposite for you know the king. Yeah, when we think about the characters in this narrative being like archetypes, like they're themselves, but they're also archetypes. There is sort of this question: Who's actually the great one? Is it Xerxes or is it Vashti? Xerxes thinks he's great and he's showing off his greatness in order to become greater and Vashti's living in the narrative of Abram who became great by giving everything up um, and so who who are we going to follow Xerxes or Vashti which path is more appealing
Um, I haven't rehearsed this, <laughs> and my uh, thoughts are not fully formed, so thanks for your grace in that. But I'm thinking about, um, I do feel like I'm living into my vocation, and I work in healthcare, and healthcare in this country is really not great. And so how do I, am I like sacrificing, like, well, at least I get to do this, at least I get to live into my vocation, even in this corrupt system that's way bigger than even the hospital system that I work in, or, um, yeah, how, or, or the leader is just not a great leader, or, uh, people that came before me so that I can have this job or can have this vocation and what am I leaving behind? All those things and um, is it worth it <laughs> or is it enough to be the reason to stay? Yeah. I think that makes me think about like, thanks Alicia, the when Vashti didn't say no until this point, right? So when we are in a place where we're inside of a system where we're not sure, like, is this where I should really be? Am I supporting something? Am I fighting against something? But I love my job here or whatever. Vashti was inside of it for a really long time. She just knew when it was her time to say no. And how is that also the situation we're in? Do we know what that point is where we're like, this is no longer actually serving a greater good? Or that, like, there is a point that I have a no. There is a thing I will not do, a line I will not cross. Well, it makes me think, I mean, this is very much like, <laughs> it's kind of silly to be an abolitionist and then work in the prisons. <laughs> right? Like, but there are people there. And there are people in desperate need of someone to say, hey, I see you. You belong. You're part of my community, right? And that's that's still some of the same work of we're all working in systems, and everybody needs care. So there's ways to, you know, be subversive. This is where I feel like Esther has some subversive. Like, there's some subversive business there. We don't always have to be the ones that are like outside saying no, right? Our hearts can be there. I feel like my heart is with the folks who are trying to, I mean, there's somebody who's wrongfully convicted in prison right now. His name's Philip Vance. What does it look like? like I, can't, I can't go to the protest. Like I, not if I want to continue being in the prison. But how do you then support them? How do we be supportive of folks who are doing that work? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if it's right. But you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would say thank you for showing up and taking care of us. And also, if you choose to step away because that's what you need to do, thank you for that bravery too. Like, that may be what's needed. And so thank you for all of that work that you do. Maybe we can retitle the book of Esther, Lots of Ways to Be Brave. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have something, Tammy? Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking with Vashti and tying it back to the church and kind of the, the, the weightiness and the legacy that she left of what are other women going to do? When I think of the most powerful and meaningful voices leading like the deconstruction, 
maybe it's just because I am a woman, but it felt primarily that it was women leading that charge. And so did she leave? Like, is there a way that we can still tie that thread all the way through of women being the voice that we're just like, no, this, this doesn't make sense. Why would I do this? And, and being okay with speaking up and, and making that choice. So just, yeah, tying the thread. Thank you, Tammy. Well, thank you, everyone. I think this wraps up our very first live recording of <laughs> Searching the Sacred. Any any words from you, Jason, as we close? No, I mean, I think a nice way might be just for each of us to share just a really quick what, what we're taking away. And I, and I think for me, it's that that struggle to like be willing to hold multiple ways of engaging the power structures that we have as opposed to, you know, trying to figure out which one's the right one. And I, I just struggle with that so much. Um, and I need to make room for that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm taking away. I, mine might be surprising because I just keep thinking about how Xerxes wasn't all bad. <laughs> <laughs> it is surprising. I know. <laughs> well, because I feel like... I, I, there's something in me that also keeps thinking, yeah, but he also, like, when it does get to the end of the book, he responds positively to Esther. He pivots as a leader. He, like, the, the Persian Empire pivots in response to Nehemiah. Like, that sort of, it, it gives me a little bit of hope for those working inside the system that there are still leaders that will pivot. Yeah. Um, because he seems to be one, even though he's such a person of, Opulence. And opulence. I keep using that word opulence, but like, I don't know. So what is that? I don't know why that's sticking with me, but I just keep thinking, I would look at him and think he must be a person who would never give up his power, but he does a couple times. And so what's there? What kind of way might that help us stay inside places that we feel like we still need to stay inside for a while? Hmm. Do you have a takeaway? It's really a stupid one. <laughs> I just keep thinking I should have wore the shirt that I got, which is women against bullshit. <laughs> it is really a missed opportunity. <laughs> May it be so. It'll happen again. <laughs> um, well, I have a couple non-podcast words. I don't know if there's anything we want to do to like close the podcast part. No, we'll just end it. We'll just end it and uh, sprinkle in whatever comes at the end. So Very I good. keep yeah. looking at Jason because he's the he does all the editing of it. So I'm like, is there anything we need to do to like close the recording part? No. How about um, we thank Jason, Lisa, and Steph? For <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to our 40 Orchards Fall Celebration. Yeah? Woo! Right. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, I like that audience participation there. We're going to need more of that tonight, so keep that up. Um, well, whether you are literally brand... I know there's people in the room tonight that probably have never been to a 40 Orchards uh, experience or event or scripture circle, and there are folks who are probably here with us uh, in our first cohort. And so however you come tonight, um, whatever you bring with you, we just want want you to know that you're welcome here. Um, this is a safe space. We're so glad that you would choose to spend an evening with us. Uh, I'm Todd. Uh, I am one of the board members uh, for 40 Orchards, and it is my joy um, to be able to just kind of welcome us and kind of open the night uh, together here. Um, I made some notes because otherwise I'll forget. Uh, so here's what we've got for you this evening, all right? It's a, we've got a great night planned. First, we're going to hear a little bit of an update from our co-directors, Lisa and Stephanie, um, and they're going to share a little bit about where we've been and where we're headed. Um, and then after that, it's Give to the Max Day, and so we wanted to give you an opportunity to give to this important work um, for whatever reason you found yourself here tonight, and I know that this has been a really important space for a lot of us on our journey, and, um, and so we just want to give everybody an opportunity to support it tonight. And then after that, we are going to kind of do the main event, which is we're going to get to participate in a live broadcast of, well, not live broadcast. It's not being broadcast. A live recording. Is that what it is, Jason? Jason's like the podcast guru. It's a live recording of Searching the Sacred, which is the 40 Orchards podcast, which a lot of us have come to know and love and has shaped us in our faith. And so um, we're excited to do that. All right. So first, I want to invite Stephanie and Lisa to come up and share a little bit. Yes, please give them a huge hand. Um, I, I, was a, I was a pastor for a long time. I'm no longer doing that right now. But, um, but I often said to people that, um, you know, I teach every week. Um, but Stephanie and Lisa are some of my greatest teachers. And so um, I know that they have been for you as well. And, um, and so we're really grateful to have you guys um, leading this uh, community and sharing your wisdom with us. And maybe just share a little bit about kind of where we've been in this last year. I don't know if you remember, who was here last year with us at this time, right? You remember? I was shoveling snow out front um, before the gathering last year, and uh, wow, what a difference a year makes. Um, so what's happened this last year? Well, Lisa got her MDiv, you guys. I wanted to be the one to say that, so they would clap for you. What if I watched? <laughs> Sorry, we didn't plan it ahead of time, so. You go first. Um, so last year, those who were here, we talked about um, taking a break from the cohort program for the year and, and having that Sabbath experience of letting it rest because it would have been the seventh group. And so, uh, so we did. So 2023 has been a really different rhythm for us without a cohort going. And uh, Lisa uh, used that opportunity to press the gas pedal on seminary. <laughs> Is that take, fair to say? Take a few extra classes to shorten my time. Um, and I use that opportunity to write an Enneagram book, um, which is my other hat besides 40 Orchards. But 
So people have asked me, the reason I say that is because people are like, well, how is your Sabbath year going? And I was like, well, it was a Sabbath for the cohort. <laughs> That's different than being a Sabbath for us. But it, but it was because it was different and it allowed us a different sort of space to think about what was next for all of the things that we do at 40 Orchards. So we, we continued on with Roots programs and open circles and partnerships and those things that we do. But we also now, as we look towards starting the cohort back up again in 2024, had the opportunity to say, what do we really want it to look like? Because taking a step back helps us say what has worked and what could be better from past years. So um, we've changed our rhythm of how often we're gonna gather. We're changing the curriculum. Um, I don't know how much spoiler we want to give about it, but there's, there's some changes coming for the cohort that felt like they were able to come from that space that we had to reflect. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where um, I, Brian and I were chatting, and Brian's like, yeah, it's like when you get more storage, like you're like, oh, I got to get more storage, and you get more storage, and then it's like full. Um, and like the Sabbath of the cohort kind of felt a little bit like that. Like it felt like, yeah, let it rest. But like then everything kind of fills in and you're like, whoa, I don't, is that really, is that what you're supposed to do? Is that, do we do that right? How do you, how do you measure that? Um, Cause like it shouldn't be that we produce so much more and that's why we had the set, but that was not the point. <laughs> um, and so like, it is like, yeah, it, there was some space that allowed some bigger pushes, but it also allowed for like, I will say, like, for the missing of having the relationships that develop in the cohort, like being able to really spend time with people and hear their stories and hear the wrestles and get to a point where they're asking the vulnerable questions in a community of people that can also respond to those things. Um, and to, I, it, like, gives you a sense of appreciation where it doesn't just become, like, this normal rhythm. You actually don't take it for granted then, I think, is part of the... Um, what's kind of like, feels like that's part of what happens when we take a break from it. Um, it makes me think a lot about every other past cohort and differently. Like it, it just allows more space to play and think about things. And like also feels like I was a part of the first cohort and we were in our Israel trip was like this time of year. So like my, I get lots of memories that pop up. And it's, um, it almost feels like a lifetime ago. And then it also feels like I would like right back. And so I, it's been an interesting like pause. It, and it feels like there's, it feels like there's things growing. I just don't know exactly what they are. Which actually, I mean, that I'm really excited for next year because part of the idea of giving the land a break. So the, the biblical idea that we were modeling after was every seven years, you don't harvest the land, you give the land a break. And a program felt like the thing to give a break in a model like 40 Orchards. And the idea of that in a farming practice is that it, it increases the yield after that. Like the land needs a break. It needs to not be harvested all the time. And um, the next cohort group, so those who've been in the cohort before, I would love, show of hands, how many of you have been in the cohort program at 40 Orchards? All right, so everybody in this who's got their hands up knows that we name cohorts after a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. So it goes in order. So we've had Aleph and Bet and Gimel and Dalit and Hay and Vav. <laughs> and our next cohort is cohort Zion. And 
<laughs> Trevor, did you say whoa? <laughs> I want to hear more about that whoa. <laughs> and um, and when we think mystically about the Hebrew letters, the letter Zayin is the letter that starts the word remember, zakar, and it's also the letter that starts the word zarah, seed. And so I'm looking at this next cohort. We're looking at this next cohort thinking there's going to be something special about this next group that is both remembering what came before and, and planting the seeds of the future. And it feels like the break that we took will help that happen even more. So, Todd, are you going to talk again? <laughs> We're real polished here at 40 Orchard. Yeah, so, well, thank you so much. Let's give him a hand, right? Um, yeah, we, we are grateful for the way that you've held this last year and the way that you've held that space of rest from the cohort uh, to, like, imagine and envision and, and just even have some room uh, in your own lives and relationships to, to, to kind of get back into a place where, like, all right, now what? So I'm excited for what is to come. Um, so now, uh, as you can imagine, uh, all of this, right, it, it takes some resources, right? We've got some incredible staff that we need to take care of. Um, we've got some, you know, other resources that 40 Orchards produces. We've got the podcasts that we produce and all of that stuff takes some resources. We don't want to make some big heavy ask, but we do want to ask our community who values this, um, uh, to be invested in it with us. Um, and so um, I just want to say as a board member and as somebody who has participated in um, root studies and, 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 you know, we had a church partnership um, at the community that I was leading um, and just seeing the benefit of all of this, um, one of the things that I've appreciated about um, how it is that 40 Orchards uses their resources is that there's always been a deep sense of both integrity and faith with that. Like, I see the numbers. I know where the money goes. Um, there's not a ton of margin, um, and it pretty much um, goes to the things that make uh, what 40 Orchards does possible, right, in terms of having, you know, good staffing in place to, to lead us uh, and all of that and creating um, meaningful programs and experiences um, for our community. Um, but the thing that I'm more impressed by is, uh, is what Steph and Lisa talked about, um, and that is the integrity of uh, the journey that we're on together as a community. Things like looking at the rhythms that we're studying week in, week out, month in, month out, and saying this is this is what we see in Torah. That that to like um, you know to place our faith in the abundance means to actually let it have a rest, and then to take the biggest revenue-producing program in in your. Um, kind of profile and say, that's the thing that we're going to lay fallow, that we're going to take a rest on, um, to me smacks of some real integrity of not just like finances, but some real integrity of spirit and of values um, and, and caring for the work that you're doing beyond just what it produces or, or how many people you can get there or whatever. Um, but, but really wanting to model it. And so um, that's just one of the ways that 40 Orchards is, and I'm going to read this because it's our mission statement. It's just one of the ways that 40 Orchards is creating space for all people, and we mean all people, to wrestle through biblical texts so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred 
and good, or sorry, sacred and whole and good. Um, I've experienced that here. I hope you have too. Um, let's support that together. So um, probably uh, on your seat somewhere, there's some of these cards. Um, and if you are able, and we recognize that um, we're not all able all the time, um, this is one way that you can give is to fill out this card with, uh, and either, you know, there's like a place for credit card information or um, to even just, uh, you know, sign up to, to get on the newsletter, to pray to this and that and all the other. Um, I don't know, maybe there's not praying there. That's like an old church, that's an old church meme that just kind of got brought over. I don't know. Sorry. Um, Prayer is good. You know, we study that too. Um, uh, so yeah, so there's there's that's one way to support. Um, another way to support is uh, there are some QR codes that are kind of scattered around the room. Um, you can go there and find a place to give online. There should also be these cards, um, and they have a QR code on them as well. That doesn't take you directly to the donation site on our website, but it brings you to kind of our programs page. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom of that, you can click a button that says here, and that'll bring you to the donation site. And so um, if you're able to, um, we invite you to give and give generously uh, to this work. And uh, I'm going to give you a minute to, to look into that and, and consider. I would just add that it also supports us to come to things. So that QR code on that card will show you some of the upcoming things we have. So if you are, if this time doesn't feel like the right time to be doing a donation, scan that QR code, see some of our upcoming things, and see if you want to come to any of them. This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.